And I think something that's also lost and I've found just, you know, I know that a lot of different organizations, you know, we have, you know, these ideals and principles that our organizations are built upon. We want to hold strong and firm to those things. But, you know, you have to be willing to have the conversations, you know, and come to the table to have the conversation. Okay, today's guest in the Gravity podcast is Christopher Scott. He, him, his is a serial entrepreneur, the co-founder and managing partner of Billion or Bust Ventures with the goal to inspire a billion diverse businesses to become billion-dollar enterprises. He also co-founded Two Cent Sports, a sports media company aiming to tell sports stories and amplify the voices of athletes through the lens of pop culture, which is a Black culture. Christopher also carefully selected and curated other B-plus media sites and oversees their innovative content and editorial integrity. This has enabled him to initiate highly engaging and deeply sustained conversations with his core target audience, the influential minority millennial. In addition to all that, he serves as an advisor for the venture capital group Pride Fund, one, Christopher describes himself as Black, a trans man with the emphasis on being Black first. All right, Christopher, welcome. Uh, it's awesome to have you here on the Gravity Podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure. It's a pleasure. And I know your your story is rich and one that I'm excited to hear. Uh, as you know, with our podcast, we've been kind of taking people all the way back to the beginning. So tell us a little bit about kind of your early life, your childhood, your family, uh, all that fun stuff. Yeah, taking it back. Um, I am originally from Virginia. Come from, uh, I would say, a a mix of military um, and a very musical background. Um, All four of my parents were in the Air Force. And yes, I did say four. Uh, (laughs) So kind of um, going... It's very important that I mention both the military as well as the musical background because my grandparents is who I end up spending a good amount of time around due to the fact that my parents, you know, they were in the military. Um, my grandfather was a musician um, and he was also a videographer as well. He was in the National Guard and he worked for the post office. My grandmother, uh, she had a background in social work and they were very active uh, in church as well as um, whether it's feeding the homeless, very active in church even, you know, helping senior citizens, just we were always giving and trying to help people. They didn't necessarily have everything financially, but they taught me how you can still provide and do for people by by giving in other ways. Uh, So growing up, I I knew I was always going to, you know, run some type of business or be some type of an entrepreneur. My grandmother would joke uh, because even as a kid, they would have like a little home office, like an old commander a 60, Commando 64 computer, like one of the first computers we had to use the floppy disk um, with it and do the run code. Uh, but I had my own office. It was called room service and, uh, you know, ask questions and get people's names down. And I was legitimately thinking I was running a full-fledged company. Um, this was at the age of five years old. Uh, I remember um, oftentimes uh, during church when my grandparents would help out, you know, we would have something that was called a repast. They would, you know, help serve the food or either make the food. Um, one time I ended up serving and just helping and I ended up getting like $40 in tips, I'm like nine years old getting tips. I wasn't asking for tips, you know, just, I was providing, you know, good, you know, service and 
you know, people pay for service. I think that was probably one of the first lessons in the value um, that, that I had learned from that. Um, that was one of those things where people were acknowledging my value and my worth and um, also honoring financially, honoring that financially. Kind of fast forward, uh, definitely was a church musician. Um, my stepfather and my uh, mother were very, very active in church. Uh, I played bass, guitar, drums, uh, organ, uh, did all those things. And my stepfather was in charge of the audiovisual department um, in church. So, you know, handling the camera equipment as far as engineering and sound, which kind of leads to the work that I do today. Um, if I were to say what I do today is I help people go from name to brand through storytelling. Um, and there's so many different mediums in which you can use for storytelling, you know, whether that's, you know, you're doing a marketing video, a podcast, you know, like we're on, that's, that is a way to tell a story. And so all of those skills, even going back to learning, you know, from my grandparents, uh, you know, that's bringing, incorporating the service aspect as well as, you know, different skills from audiovisual is how it's helping me become such a great content marketer today. So that's kind of a, a little bit of a brief story. Didn't I go to college? I did, I did go to college for a semester, um, but all of the work, I'm very self-taught. The power of the internet um, has definitely helped me. Um, there's so many different resources. Even as middle school, high school, I read a lot. I still read often. I know that you know, the power of reading can help you go a lot further. You're looking at someone who made a business plan when I was 12 years old. I just went in the library, got a book, learned how to do a business plan, taught myself what a marketing plan was uh, I helped my father who did IT services in the Air Force. So that's when I was introduced to um, the internet of things, if you will, as far as, you know, networking and wireless, uh, which also kind of helps me today with uh, marketing as well um, and consumer electronics. And I say consumer electronics because that is the medium in which we now um, both communicate and we reach our audience. Uh, you know, it's no longer through traditional mediums like television and radio. You know, the phone or Instagram is how we market. So in understanding how uh, technology has changed and being able to interact and see those changes uh, has also been able to help me become such a good storyteller in using those yeah. mediums. Okay, so so uh, that's that. there's a lot there. Let's back up. So tell me a little bit kind of, you know, in those kind of early childhood days, um, I hear kind of the service, the music, you know, the things that's starting to emerge. You know, talk a little bit about like what was it like to be, you know, a, a child in your kind of family unit, and and kind of how did you start to like feel about those aspects? I mean, certainly you can look back on them in hindsight, you can see how they've benefited you today. But what was it like at the time to be you as a, a child? You know, it just, you know, really kind of take me into that experience. Oh, yeah, it was definitely, I knew I was a very different child. I was the oldest uh, grandchild, great-grandchild and child. And so a lot of things uh, had to do more so as an adult, you know, in, 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 in teaching myself. Uh, being heavily involved in church, I didn't have your traditional childhood where I, I was great at sports, but, you know, I wasn't, you know, doing sports in school um, and those after-school activities, you know. My time was built, you know, I'm, I'm learning how to uh, raise funds and fundraise, you know, for, for a church event. You know, I'm, I'm learning, um, I'm spending more time, you know, learning how to build these things rather than what I see my other peers and things like that when I go 
um, to school, but I'm also not interested in school the same way. Uh, I didn't find traditional idea of school interesting. Um, I would pay attention in class, but the most, the most important classes to me or the most interesting class to me were the business classes. Um, I didn't really care about like the history and, and science because I felt like it wasn't necessary in that what they were trying to teach and where I was trying to go. And, One you, of the big- and you really knew that at that age, like you really, you could understand that like, where you wanted to go and what was, what was uh, fueling you and what wasn't. Yes, absolutely. Like, you know, I don't know too many, I, when I, I'm getting to daycare at you know, six years old and the thing I want to play with, I'm either playing Monopoly or I'm playing with Legos. I'm playing with Monopoly because like the idea of buying property and building hotels and houses, you know, I'm playing with Legos because I like building houses. You know, I was very much so interested in architecture. I, again, I knew very much so well on what I wanted to do. I used to tell my mother I was going to be a stockbroker and be involved in finances, you know, in the morning, you know, I'm looking at the weather and then I'm also paying attention to the S&P and NASDAQ and at a very early age. I'm, I'm watching these things. I'm very, I'm, I'm very cognizant of. And that's rare. Um, you know, not a lot of people have that self-awareness at such a young age. Um, and I, you know, luckily I had people and mentors along the way that noticed and saw that and tried to do the best that they could to, to nurture that. Mm-hmm. And that yet, yet at the same time, which is often uh, also not true, you've got this kind of musical side. So you you kind of sound like you've got both the kind of left brain, right brain. You're you know creative and 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 in the music kind of scene, and also you know really focused on kind of the business finance side of things too. That's pretty unique, especially for a young person. Yes, and I was I was. I understood I liked like to create, but I also knew why it was kind of uh, um, shunned upon to create because you know how are you gonna you know feed your family? You know, how are you gonna how are you gonna eat? You know, being a musician, um, it's a harder thing to break into. Um, but I also knew that there was other things attached to you know being a musician, the, the business of being a musician. You know, you have your agents, you know, you have your managers, you have your record labels. Um, but yes, I did have that balance of, you know, creation and, you know, also being logical, which is very rare. And I could just make mm-hmm. stuff. Like I was good at photography. I was good at videography and you know, web design. I, I could always do those things. Yeah. Always, always been able to do it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I don't know, I'm just kind of like imagining you at that age uh, kind of with these interests, right? You're in the church world and the music scene, and you're also really passionate about uh, certain aspects of of the business world. And I'm wondering, like, what was your social life like? You know, did you have kind of a did you have kind of a a normal uh, you know social scene teen experience in high school experience, or were you kind of more no. on your own doing your own thing? Absolutely not. I was, you yeah. know, I was, I had a very small group of friends, you know, I was considered as an outsider. I mean, you know, like, like, like most individuals, especially that kind of tend to have these stories or background because I just, you know, I, I thought differently, but I also knew that my idea of what fun was, was different from another person's idea of fun. Like my first legal job on paper, I was 14 years old. I've been working since I was 14. Like, I've worked at companies that don't even exist anymore. Circuit City, you know, Alto, like those companies, you know, don't, don't exist. Um, but I, but I was also, I, you know, knew that 
you, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to accumulate wealth. And the only way to do that was to work um, and to, to, to make that happen. But I also knew that I didn't want to go the traditional route of my parents. Like to see my, you know, grandparents work for a job 30 and 40 years or retire to have to work again, or the idea of my parents being in the military for 20 years to turn around and get a government job and have to work again, it just didn't seem right. I didn't want to take that same route. And, and that sense of being an individual, um, was that hard for you at the time? Was that something that you embraced? Um, kind of how did that land with you? What was the experience of that like? I often embraced uh, being an individual um, and just, you know, add to it because, again, I only feel like this is 5% of my story. I originally, you know, being, you know, at birth, I identified as female. You know, I'm not in transition, you know, uh, you know, I identify as male now. Um, and so even in knowing that I knew at the age of three and four, like, I know what's supposed to happen, but it just doesn't seem right. You know, mm-hmm. I, I knew then, like, you know, I, there was always that, that male aspect that, that was a thing. Um, and then even, you know, my family and family members can attest to that as well. So being in knowing that at an early age and knowing who you are, you be, you be, I became very okay with it. And then I also noticed how other people didn't know who they were. Um, and they were just kind of, you know, going this way and going that way. And then I just also knew just from, you know, reading books, like in all the people that came before me, like those people that were often misunderstood in their youth, you know, those end up being the leaders and, you know, you considered an outlier, but you end up being a leader and you have to lead the path. Yeah. Christopher, I, I want to just kind of um, go in a little deeper with you on that, because I don't think it's something that uh, a lot of people really know kind of the depths of and 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 I and I don't and if you don't mind I'd like you to share a little bit more that that at age 3 and 4 you you described it as like you knew what was supposed to be but it wasn't you know how you felt or it wasn't wasn't true for you that that seems really young can you can you articulate like how that became clear to you or what specifically was it that you know felt out of alignment or, or, you know, I don't, I'm not sure how to describe it, but can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, when you start to, um, I've also, uh, my, as far as like how my body has been, I've always had like a, a more masculine body, if you have broad shoulders, stuff like that. I have my father's mm-hmm. built and frame. Um, and so then even, you know, interacting and socially interacting as a child, you know, at early ages, you know, you know, if, you know, if you're, you're a female and guys are not liking you, you know, and you're always the friend and you're the homie and you, that's, that's those interactions, you know, you kind of start to feel some type of way. You start to kind of understand mm-hmm. some things about yourself. And then even those things that traditionally, I guess you would say that, you know, a, a, a little girl would gravitate towards hated. Just, mm-hmm. it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. I didn't feel normal. I wasn't comfortable. Um, and so I gravitate, I've always gravitated to what strongly pulled or what I felt more comfortable with. And, you know, even like my interests, like I just wasn't good at, you know, certain things. Like I couldn't even color in the lines. Like, you know, you know, traditionally, you know, you know, some people may not like this, you know, girls are really good at coloring. Um, I was never good at coloring, but the things that, you know, the, the guys were good, I was good at sports and stuff like that. I, I, it's, that's just, just natively how it was. Um, and one of the biggest things that I do want to say is that people, there's a very, people are starting to understand more. There's a big difference between gender and sexuality. And that's, I think, something that people need to truly, you know, honestly understand um, those those two different things. Um, I remember I was, oh, I, just to just kind of figure out if I wanted to share the story. Uh, I was three years old, going back to when I was three. 
my great grandmother walked past the bathroom and I was standing up using the bathroom mm-hmm. and we locked eyes and we didn't say anything. She never said anything. We didn't, we didn't say anything, didn't address it until roughly about earlier this year. She's like, you know, I do remember that time. So, mm-hmm. you know, the more that I, it just, everything just makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's interesting and we can talk about the gender sexuality differences and, and really make sure that that is clear. You know, I think what's um, interesting for me is that, you know, today, at least in kind of my little world, I know this isn't true um, in many other parts of the country and world, the idea of transitioning and um, identifying gender is very well known and, you know, to some degree embraced and accepted in a very different way than it was you know, I don't know, 10, 20, even five years ago. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of progress in that area. I know as I just watch my own children who grow up in a environment where at the school there is um, trans bathrooms, there are um, a lot of kids that are identifying this way. And it's like not an issue uh, in, in our little bubble. I mean, yeah. I know this is still you know, an issue, right? Yeah. But it's come a long way in sure, certain sure. parts. But 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 then, you know, I'm just wondering, uh, you know, what it was like, these kind of little dots that maybe your grandparents and parents were kind of noticing and and kind of what then like the family experience or the broader community experience, experience at school, you know, kind of how did you even have the courage? It sounds like you had the courage to really follow that the way that you felt. You know, I think it's a, a pretty uh, phenomenal thing for a young person, even something like standing up to go to the bathroom. You know, that wasn't something that was really um, okay, so to speak. You know, yeah, um, and you, but you you did it anyway because that's how you felt. I'm just kind of curious to kind of hear like what what was what was underneath that, and how did that um, really uh, kind of manifest itself amongst your your family and the community you were in. So coming from a very religious family background, you know, mm-hmm. already yeah, there's that on know, top of it, it, right? Already, you know, not necessarily doing traditional or dressing traditionally how girls dress, there was already an issue with that. And it wasn't until I didn't start the transition process until I was 26 years old. And the very interesting thing about it is that if I had to go and do it all over again, I would say I would do it at the same age because I'm in a unique position where I can say that I understand what it's like to be a Black woman um, in this world as well as a Black man in this world. Specifically, all the things that I accomplished and built in the business world I was identifying as a black woman, you know, so I was, I'm understanding and, and I have a great deal of empathy and knowing that, yes, many women are not given the same opportunities to capital and access. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with me, I was more concerned uh, about my purpose and what I felt like I, you know, was called to like here to do, like, you know, my purpose here on earth. And like my biggest thing, uh, being that my family was from Richmond, Virginia, um, they definitely experienced a lot of poverty. Um, and I saw what low-income housing, um, what it looked like um, and what it should be. And one of my biggest things uh, is that I wanted to change low-income housing and the whole idea of what affordable housing was. 
um, is just that was just one of the biggest things because my family was deeply affected, you know, with redlining um, coming from a city like Richmond, Virginia. I remember at one point in time, uh, you know, my family owned property, um, and as uh, you know, as gentrification uh, does, um, especially even before um, not just gentrification, the two thousand eight uh, recession in you know the housing bubble, I did you know see quite a bit of my family members lose, you know, property. Um, and they just didn't have the finances. They didn't have the resources. Most importantly, they didn't know how to get the information, didn't have access to the information to, to better themselves or to keep those properties. So my whole thing was, I'm not going to let, although, you know, I was still dealing with these things internally, like, okay, I know that what's on the inside is not matching on the outside. I couldn't let that stop me. I knew I was going to get to that point where I can get to the point to transition but my goal and my purpose was more important than that transition at the time. When I started to get to a point where I was starting to get into my career and what I needed to do and what I was building, I said, okay, I'm going to take the time to do this and um, focus on myself to work on the personal side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, you know, it's an interesting thing because I think um, my worldview is that, you know, these things all happen kind of at the right time. and. And it's really fascinating to hear you say that in hindsight, that you can really see the benefit of your transition happening when it did, having the experience that you had really serving you. I mean, that, that is really the whole point of this podcast is so that we can see what's happened in our lives and how it actually serves you and 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 I don't know if this is true for you but it sounds like in, in my own experience there's a tremendous amount of gratitude that really emerges for having the experience that you've had there's silver linings all over the place being able to understand what it's like to be a black woman in the business world um boy that serves you really serves you well real- doing what you're doing now I honestly didn't really understand the gravity of it probably until like last year, the end of last mm. year. Because a friend of mine was just like, hey, like, you're like an X-Men. You know, not a lot of mm. people can, can say that. Like, you, you, you're like the ultimate like empathy person. And then also knowing that, you know, certain and seeing firsthand how certain demographics um, don't have that same access I know I can be in those rooms and knock down those doors and say, hey, look, you know, now with that male privilege, if you will, like, hey, look, this is what needs to happen, what has to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important that there are people that are doing that and that are speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just see, you know, and this has maybe been a kind of theme for me. I'm currently finishing a month-long gratitude practice um, as a part of a program my wife and I are involved with. And, um, and, you know, they have a kind of silver linings essay where you can kind of write all the, uh, things or a particular thing that was really hard for you in life, but what was the silver lining? What did it kind of lead you towards? And, you know, it sounds to me like, um, hard, no doubt. I'm, I'm not you know, taking anything away from the challenge of the experience, but a lot of silver linings. I mean, to be able to see not just what it's like to be uh, a, a black female entrepreneur, but also to see the the 
housing, uh, you know, inequality, the redlining, and 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 whatever else that you know you've kind of gotten to see along the way has opened up doors really for you to walk through, you know, in in droves really as you now go on into your career and adult life. Even as I definitely have a sense of gratitude now. I'm not going to say that it's been easy. There's definitely been a lot of tears. You know, I've also been married, you know, I've you know, been divorced, um, you know, and then dealing with that, it's, it's almost like it's just, it's just a level of just understanding how deep the human experience is um, and understanding that all these other things that we all experience, bottom line, we just, we have that commonality that we're human. We have emotions, we have feelings. Yes, also, you know, knowing and understanding, you know, you know, you know, being from, you know, being black, you know, and being a part of, you know, African-American community, but, you know, you know, serving as, you know, I am that T, you know, an LGBTQIA plus and understanding, you know, how certain opportunities, you know, are not, are not giving to, again, another group of underrepresented individuals. And so I, again, it definitely, I won't say that everything has been a bed of roses. There's been some sleepless nights. There's been lots of tears, there's lots of crying, but to be able to share my story and to let people know like, hey, look, I do understand, but there is hope on the other side. It, 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 it was worth every, every part of it, every, mm-hmm. every single moment of it. Yeah, yeah, and, and what's it been like? And I know it's been hard, and I mean, I, I can't imagine really, but I, I, I you know, see it on your face and I hear it in your voice. And despite the silver linings, despite the, lessons learned, the opportunities gained. I mean, I know there's a lot of pain there. I, I want to honor that fully. Tell me, you know, kind of what's gotten you through it? You know, aside from your own kind of courage, what else has gotten you through it? Was it mentorship? Was it community? Was it family? Um, you know, tell me kind of what else did you pull from? Because I think this is, you know, this is really where you can be, and I'm sure are, of great service to others. You know, the service being a thing that, you know, also really uh, emerges in your life at an early age, you know, you have the opportunity to, to kind of share your journey here now and in other ways for other people to know where they can turn, what they can do to kind of pull through that pain they might still be in right now? Yeah, I think it's community. Um, community is, is such a big thing um, and not limiting to what that community is going to look like. Uh, Columbus is one of the few places I've lived in my life where you have, regardless of what people may say, and, and, I, and, and I say that because I, I've, I've heard different experiences that people, See, people have different experiences living in Columbus. You know, I've lived in big cities. I've lived in Atlanta. You know, I've lived in the Panhandle. I grew up in Virginia. And I've been all along the East Coast. Um, it's one of the few places where you have all walks of life trying to make life better for all groups of people. And uh, in that, you have so many different types of communities that can serve. Like you have a creative community. You have um, the entrepreneurial community. Um, these these different you know communities that you know still care about underlying you know the, the human aspect you know you bring, and then they they kind of come together as this like beautiful ecosystem you know to see how the creative community kind of bleeds over to the entrepreneurial community or the tech community bleeds over to the entrepreneurial community even comes to construction you know um, like you know I, 
and I, and I have no problem saying this, you know, everybody has their qualms about, you know, the gravity project, but what the gravity project, what it represents and how, how important it is. I think we're, we're missing it underlying. Um, it's, it's, it's a new idea of what it, what it is to live or to be a community and bringing the idea of having everybody together, having these common spaces. Um, it's, it's very easy to, to kind of judge or to think, uh, it's, it's not about the community when you haven't been a part of it. Um, and then sometimes in making these changes, you know, and it being in Franklin and, you know, it helps to elevate the community and kind of, you know, bring in, um, more opportunities for that community. Uh, um, and that's not, I'm not just, I'm not just trying to plug, but again, I think that's, that's important because as we take a look at what's going on in the world, you know, the ideas of traditional living spaces is not going to be the same. Um, the idea of, you know, going to the office, I mean, you know, here we are, I'm recording, you know, we're recording this podcast through Zoom, you're in your home office, you know, I'm on my iPad outside, the traditional, the traditional office is it's not going to be the same, you know, but you may have to, to, to be able to have a place where you can go ahead and leave and still be in the domicile of your home to, to be able to do those things or to work or to meet or gather, it's important. Um, so going back to it, going back to the biggest thing is, is, is community. Community is what has gotten me through. And the community has led me to meeting other individuals. Um, uh, and I'm just great. I, 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 I'm just grateful for community. It's, that's the big thing. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to connect with other people, not just people that don't talk. Talk to people that don't look like you, that come from a different place from you. Although you come from a different place, you can still find a commonality. And although you may not agree, you can still agree to disagree. I feel that, you know, people feel like they can't listen to another individual. And if they listen to another individual, it means that you agree. No, you're just taking the time to learn because they can still teach you something, you know, a different perspective or, you know, how they may have gotten through a different situation. All they may not, although the situations may not be the same, um, you can still, you know, draw something from, from how they got through that situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, the community piece is really critical, and that can show up in a number of ways. I mean, it can just be a community of of peers, uh, a support network, um, you know, a a twelve step program. You know, if you're an addict, um, any kind of uh, group that you know can share and support each other can be a community. Uh, and gravity, you know, is uh, intended. To really be a community that is uh, a really a support network, it can really bring people together to collaborate, to have fun, to grow, to uh, really any number of ways. And and yeah, look, um, we're all work in progress. You know, our intentions are clear. Um, we're 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 doing um, what we can, and we're going to keep you know getting better and better. Uh, but, but really the intention is exactly, you know, what you said to bring a community that does kind of honor, uh, all people that, that is open and, and, and loving and really hoping to uplift. And it's really an important thing. And I think something that's also lost and I found just, you know, I know that a lot of different organizations, you know, we have, you know, these ideals and principles that our organizations are built upon. We want to hold strong and firm to those things, but, you know, you have to be willing to have the conversations, you know, and come to the table to have the conversation, you know, and it's easy, you know, if, you know, if there's certain things that you may not necessarily agree with, you know, say, Hey, look, you know, I would love to kind of give you some input about how I think this, you know, you could do this or do this, but be willing to have those conversations 
you know, and if, you know, other organizations or people come and say, hey, look, how can we do better? We want to do better. Um, uh, we got to allow that space, you know, forgiveness and we need to allow that space. And again, going back to empathy, uh, I, I, I can't stress that enough. Empathy is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me, before we kind of go on into what you're up to now and kind of how all of this has really led you to your work, um, I, I want to just kind of ask you one more question uh, about the kind of decision. You said that, you know, you really transitioned uh, at age 26. What was it like to to kind of make that step, to take that step to say, okay, you know, I've known this Three, since I was three, four years old, I've been kind of living in a, in, a, in a way that wasn't in total alignment. And now I'm taking the step. Was it, was it like, yeah, just had to do it. It was time. What, what was that step like for you? And, and you know, kind of how did, how did it go to go through that process? It was a lot of research um, and it was a lot of me having to understand, okay, everybody's not going to be okay with this decision. And I didn't care because I knew that I was making this decision for me and about me. And I had to be okay and know like, look, everybody's not going to be okay. And you still have to press forward because I knew that, again, it can go either way. Um, and then from a medical standpoint, making sure I had the, you know, the correct resources and I would say, you know, being in Columbus, Columbus is very, very um, friendly when it, when it comes to, you know, helping um, and providing those resources, uh, you know, for the LGBTQIA plus community. So I had those resources and I had that support from various, you know, friends as well as, you know, medical organizations. So it made me more comfortable to go ahead and say, hey, you know what? Um, I have everything that I need here. I can go ahead and do this with the right support. Well, you've, you've done it and it's inspiring and I know it's been hard, but it is really, you know, I say that sincerely, it's really inspiring to see somebody um, just living in alignment with who they really are. And um, I know that it's probably still hard, but that's a battle I think that we all face these ideas of you know, everybody's not going to be happy is, is a thing that I think is pretty pervasive in our society. The, the pleasing, the, whether it be, um, you know, from a gender standpoint or whether it be just the societal norms, peer pressures, parental pressures. I mean, these are all things that, you know, I've battled with and I think we all do really living authentically into who we really are and not caring as much about uh, who's in agreement with it. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly you care about your family, you care about your friends, you, you want to people to, to like you, but you know, when those things are at odds, it's tough and you've really made a courageous choice. I really, uh, I'm honored by it and inspired by it. Thank you. Yes, I know it's very, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter, you know, gender, race, nationality, whatever the case may be. Being yourself in a world where it's not common, that's the most bravest thing that you can do. And we're in a world where there's so much fabrication and we're craving authenticity. Um, and I think authenticity is extremely important. Yeah, me too. All right. So how are you now? authentically living into all this great stuff you're up to. Talk to me about kind of 
what you're doing now and and you know I know it makes sense based on the story we just heard but you know share with the audience a little bit about kind of what you're you're doing now so uh, back in 2014 my business partner Elle and I we started something called billionaire bust the purpose of billionaire bust wasn't about the money um, anything that we did we wanted to affect a billion people um, and we wanted to serve as a media hub for underrepresented individuals. So we started out kind of highlighting, you know, African-Americans and um, uh, just different people that were in the entrepreneurial space because, you know, what they were doing in, in the entrepreneurial world wasn't being highlighted at the time. It's so like 2014. It's back when Gary Vee kind of first started doing his little rise. I won't say, I'm not little belittling it by saying little rise. <laughs> jab, jab, right hook was one of the, that was the jab, jab, right hook uh, era. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we continued to grow and we had companies reach out to us because they liked the way that, uh, we, you know, came up with content and they asked if we could do it for their company. Um, so we ended up spinning off and creating an additional company called Billionaire Bust Agency. So it was B.O.B. Agency. So then we have a creative agency. Elle and I, we love sports, all types of sports, uh, basketball, soccer, you name it. We love sports. And, you know, majority of, you know, some of the, the biggest, uh, sports franchise is, I would say, 75% African-American. But, you know, those companies that own the content and produce the content are not owned by African-Americans. So we started Two Cent Sports. Uh, So Two Cent Sports is a black uh, sports media company, and we create content that is from the voice of, you know, from black voices. Um, We have uh, Two Cents FC right now, which is uh, focusing on uh, everything soccer. Um, we have uh, a series uh, that we had called Unfiltered with Jay Richardson, uh, where it highlighted a couple of different athletes during uh, COVID when COVID first started and, you know, how they were um, pivoting. Uh, we, we covered a lot of Olympic athletes because, as we know, this was supposed to be an Olympic year. Um, just to, you know, talk to them about, you know, what they were doing and how they were uh, handling and navigating the space, even from the aspect of, you know, sponsorship, because, you know, they're not getting paid. You know, that's their bread and butter is going to the Olympics. Um, But we do have, you know, other content that that will be coming out um, and, and, you know, that we're focusing on and and more shows. Uh, But that's primarily uh, what I'm focusing on uh, from a business perspective. Um, And I still help various, you know, companies and brands uh, create their content. I'm like the I'm the first person you hire on to kind of help you build and show you what your in-house marketing would look like. Um, and then once we get you to the point where you're scaling um, and you're growing, then you can go ahead and, you know, hire on a full staff uh, from mm-hmm. that point. But I just help you get yeah. into brand. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's such a it's such a kind of emerging industry still. I mean, you're right. You know, I, I got to see Gary V back in uh, 2009 was my first exposure to him at Summit Series and kind of blew my mind at the time. And I And I feel like, you know, still seeing, you know, a bar stool really, you know, emerge today as, you know, what might have been dismissed as, a, you know, I don't know, bunch of, you know, guys just, you know, talking about sports gambling right now. Yeah. Now it's like, no, 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 that's, that's, that's a media company, yes. you know, that's a giant, you know, that's um, the future. And it, and it still feels like, you know, this space is still pretty early, the idea of, Content. Let, let me ask you a question, maybe a little bit unrelated, but are you familiar with the documentary Social Dilemma? Yes, um, it's on Netflix. I am familiar with it, but no, I have not watched it yet. 
Okay. Yeah. So I just watched this documentary. It's amazing, really. I highly recommend it to anybody who uh, has not seen it yet. I found it to be tremendously insightful. Basically, the kind of gist is really how the kind of primary platform companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, you name it, um, are really kind of controlling um, and manipulating humanity, uh, that they, through kind of the suggestions and, and you know, kind of click here, you know, clickbait, um, even kind of demographically and, and geographically, uh, how search feeds are kind of really producing a fact pattern that really is uh, specific to what your demographics are and where you live. And it's creating uh, a lot of problems, addiction for teenagers, um, you know, uh, no, adults, I mean, you know, anybody really, including, you know, uh, a, a kind of a tremendous amount of frightening information around how it's impacting teenage girls um, and, and really, you know, kind of producing uh, a lot of divisiveness because, you know, people are um, really believing what they're reading and, and it's all kind of in one lane and that lane, you know, can be very different for another person. And it's, you know, creating a lot of problems. Anyway, my, my, my question really for you is with this emerging media, how do you see it in a way that isn't beneficial for humanity? Literally everything that you just said, the issue, one of the biggest problems, marketing, depending on how you look at it, manipulation, you know, even, you know, the idea of, you know, bait and switch. Um, you know, I guess I would say, you know, there's good marketing, you know, and there's bad marketing. But the issue with these platforms is that to a certain extent, um, it is user fed. So the more we interact with it, the more it learns us and people are not taking into consideration what AI is. You know, we're thinking, it just knows us. No, you're telling it, you're teaching it, you know, you're teaching it to learn you. I mean, Spotify has one of the best algorithms when it comes to making playlists. I mean, the best. Their daily mixes are bar none. And that comes from us, you know, selecting music. And they're like, hey, you like this music at this BPM? Um, so let me suggest these other songs to you at this BPM and based off of these things, things. Even when it comes to Amazon, I often tell people because, you know, I've done UX and UI design. Um, I've built apps before. I tell people, why does Amazon need to have your microphone on if you're not actively using it? You wonder why you're searching on Amazon and something pops up that you just said because you've given it access, you know, to your microphone, all these different things. And we're not, we don't really understand those terms and agreements. We just scroll past it and just hit agree. Um, so it's, it's, it's definitely a problem, but it's the bigger thing of how to solve it. That, 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 the thing with that is that unfortunately we're in a space with America is we prefer to be entertained rather than to be educated. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the big you know, point that they make, I mean, there's a number of really big points, but one of them is that, that um, the advertisers are really the customer. Oh, yeah. That we're not the customer because we don't pay for it. It's free, right? So they're not interested in what um, and, and us as much as they're interested in the advertiser. That in fact we are actually the product, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. And, and so they're using us to 
sell to their advertisers. And that's the whole thing. In fact, they say, you know, the only other industry that identifies uh, their, uh, their customer base as users is the drug industry. It's, it's very true. Even the, 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 the idea and the terms that, that that's a very good point. Because it's even the idea of instant gratification that's an immediate drug. Right. And I think even with the instant gratification piece, that also makes it difficult at times for people to have a realistic expectation of how reality is. Um, things just don't happen immediately. You know, sometimes things take time and people can be easily discouraged if, you know, they're trying to do something and they don't see that it's happening as quickly. Notice I say quickly as it's happening mm-hmm. to the other individual because, again, you know, we're only seeing what a person is allowing us to see. Um, you know, and that could be photoshopped and things like that. And, you know, we, some people tend to kind of get more fixated on the result and not knowing the process or the steps that it took to get to that result. Yeah. And I guess the reason I bring it up is because I think that, you know, there is some hope. And I think the hope really is that the right people with the right intentions, you know, have to really continue to lean into this part of the, of, of, the world. I mean, it's it's not going away. You know, um, these these platforms aren't going to just decide to unplug because they're not good for humanity. It's got to be fixed, and it's got to be fixed by the right people. And I know you're in that space, and I know we have a, a mutual interest in the Pride Fund, um, and I think it's stuff like that. You know, the the kind of venture capital that's really um, focused on the right things. I'm also. Uh, launching a fund that's, um, you know, kind of aimed at really holistically supporting entrepreneurs. And, you know, I think these are the ways that we've got to really try to make a difference is by, you know, doing it, you know, with the right intentions in the right way. And And to go back to, you know, that piece that you said, as far as it being users, we need to stop using the term user and to get back to just being a human, a human, just seeing people as humans. Um, and not so much, even, you know, I, and that's great to hear definitely about, you know, you know, you starting, you know, going to, the, to creating another uh, fund, um, because even with the VC space, it just became so much about numbers and ROI, you know, not about, okay, what are we building, you know, is what we're building going to help humanity or going to hurt humanity, but my pockets are going to be fat. Like, is it going to be worth it? And that's just, again, going back to putting empathy and thinking about, the human being at the end, not. The- yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's um, yeah. It, it's, it's the, the, the issue with these platforms really is that they have one, one way to make money in their current business model. Mm-hmm. And, and they, and their model is that they have to produce results quarter after quarter increase revenues and increase users every quarter or else their value goes away um, or is diminished. And that model is not a good model. If that's how you're measuring your success is by increased revenues and increased users and that's it, uh, then you know, to me, that's not, that's not a good model. I think you can do both. I think you can really focus on the human and the, the, the entrepreneur, the organization, and really the products being good for humanity 
And, and I think if you do that, there'll be plenty of revenue and plenty of users, um, arguably, potentially even more. So anyway, that's my little theory on venture. And uh, it's great to see you involved with the Pride Fund. I'm happy to be uh, also uh, an advisor there. And um, it's awesome to, to hear your story. I really appreciate you sharing. I think it's a beautiful story, a beautiful journey. And um, any kind of final thoughts, anything you want to make sure uh, the listeners hear and, and know where to find you and all that fun stuff? Empathy. Just just remember empathy. If I can, that's, that's the one thing that I appreciate. Anything that you do, two things. Remember your why in anything that you do. And always remember to lead with empathy. Perfect. Well said. Can't argue that. Hey, Christopher, thanks again. It's been uh, a joy to get to know you a little bit and to have you on the podcast today. Likewise, and thank you for uh, the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at The Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.